But today, we are going to be continuing our series, Jesus Follower, and uh, we are going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 2. So this is a book of the Bible um, in the New Testament, a small letter in my Bible. It is on page uh, 1155, if that helps you at all. But uh, we are going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 2, and we're going to be in verses 1 through 7. Let me give you a little bit of context as you're turning to 2 Timothy. Um, the context is Paul is writing to Timothy. This is around 67 to 68 AD. Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's planted many churches. He's raised up leaders and pastors and elders. And Timothy was one of um, Paul's disciples. He was someone that Paul, a young pastor who Paul raised up, and, and Timothy is, is pastoring this church. Many believe it to be a large church, and he's a young pastor. And so Paul writes to him to give him some instruction. Um, Paul's writing from a Roman prison awaiting his execution. So he could he could face death any day now. He's writing some final uh, instructions to his uh, protege, Timothy, to his apprentice. And he's directed Timothy to hope in Christ. He's exhorted Timothy to boldness, to endurance, to faithfulness in the face of false teaching. And kind of like Paul does, he's expressing his concern for sound doctrine, okay? So that is the book of 2 Timothy in a nutshell. Let us jump in to verses 1 through 7 of chapter 2. Are you there? All right, here we go. 2 Timothy 2, 1 says, You then, my child, be strengthened in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses in trust to faithful men, who will be able to teach others also. Share in the suffering as a good soldier for Christ. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who has enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is a hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say. For the Lord will give you understanding in everything. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, uh, I thank you for your presence among us, your, your spirit active in this place. I thank you for your word preserved for us. And I just pray that you'd speak to us, God. We've come to meet with you. We've come to hear from you. I pray that you'd give us attentive, attentiveness to your word. And, uh, and that you'd speak by your Spirit to us. Give us understanding. Give us understanding. I pray that this would not just be a transfer of information, God, but that you would help us to know how to apply the things we hear to our lives. I pray that the Word today would change us. Speak through me today, God. I pray at this time is edifying to the saints and glorifying to you, Lord, for all these things in Jesus' name. And the church said, Amen. And so uh, we are in a series called Jesus Follower, and uh, the idea of the series is we're exploring what it means to be a Jesus follower. And um, what we've learned is that a Jesus follower practices the way of Jesus, or another way to say it is that we imitate the life of Jesus. We as Jesus followers, we long to think like Jesus, to feel like Jesus, to speak like Jesus, to love like Jesus. We want to be conformed into the image of Christ. And therefore, the follower of Jesus intentionally pursues these five practices. That if the, uh, our mission as a church, and what we believe the mission of every believer is to love God, to love people, and to make disciples of Jesus Christ. How do we do that? This is how. These times, we have God time, one-on-one -on -one with the Lord daily, gather time to worship Him like we're doing today, weekly, group time, what we're going to focus on today, uh, give time, 
and go time. So this whole series is exploring the application of the mission of a disciple of Christ. We see Jesus make all of these times a priority in His life and in His ministry. And uh, we believe that these times, these practices, will help form us into the image of Christ. So today we're going to focus our time on part two of group time. Uh, Last week was part one, and this is part two. This is a a prophetic message. What I mean by that is is that this is an area of weakness in our church. Uh, I would like to see our church grow in this area. So what I'm going to preach today is not something that we've perfected, but something that I uh, am convicted that we need to pursue, okay? So to establish some teaching for us to move forward to pursue this type of group time. So last week we saw that Jesus, out of the congregation, out of the large group, the 72 disciples, he uh, thought it necessary to, to pull out a smaller group called the Twelve. And in this group, he fostered a community of faith. But then, out of the twelve, he then established an even smaller group, which we call the three, which is Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John. There are many times where just the three with Jesus experienced things that no one else experienced. I shared this with you in week one, but I'll review it again that at the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. It was just the three, Peter, James, and John in Mark 1, 29. At the raising of Jairus' daughter from the dead. Everyone get out except for the three, Peter, James, and John. Mark 5, 37. On the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. Jesus goes up on the mountain. Not all the twelve disciples went, just the three, Peter, James, and John, to see Jesus transfigured. To see Moses and Elijah, this amazing moment, God speaking from heaven to His Son. That was in Mark 9-2. The Olivet Discourse, when Jesus explained the end time events, giving special instruction of what to expect in the end times. Just the three. Mark 13-3. And with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, just prior to His trial and crucifixion, He pulls aside His three his even smaller group, his core group, Peter, James, and John, he pulls them aside and says, hey guys, can you come pray with me? Before he goes to the cross, Mark 26, Matthew 26, 37. These three had a closer relationship with Jesus than anyone else. They experienced Jesus like no one else did. They saw sides of Jesus no one else did. They experienced accelerated spiritual growth like no one else. So Jesus modeled for us, this is the second week of group time, Jesus modeled for us the need for a small group of believers to be involved in, the twelve. But then He also modeled for us the need for an even smaller group, what we're going to call a discipleship group. The three, Peter, James, and John. The discipleship group. And that's what we're going to focus on today is what it looks like, the need for a discipleship group in the life of a believer. It seems like Paul, who we just read, adopted this model from Jesus. Paul was a missionary. He traveled from town to town, from city to city, planting churches, but he didn't go alone. He always had a group of two or three other men around him. We know Barnabas and and Silas. We have uh, John Mark he brought with him one time. And of course, Timothy. He brought Timothy along on some of these journeys. It seems like Paul surrounded himself with a small group, a core group, a discipleship group, people that he could pour into in a special way and develop and hold accountable. And when he wrote to Timothy, he charged him with the task of being a disciple who makes disciples. Really, that's the main idea for these uh, verses, is that true Jesus followers are disciples who make disciples. Let's look back at the first two verses. So then, 
you then, my child, he, he had this spiritual father relationship with Timothy. This is an affectionate, endearing term he has here. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Here's the verse. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This is Paul's way of saying, go and make disciples. What you have received from me, I believe what he's speaking of is the teaching, the doctrine that Paul taught Timothy, the things about Christ, the gospel, the essentials of the Christian faith. What you have received from me, now go in trust to other faithful men who will be able to teach others also. The reason why, if you were a believer today, the reason why you were a believer in Christ is because Timothy was obedient to this command. And the people who he taught were obedient to this command. Think about it. Over 2,000 years later, the only way the good news of Jesus Christ got to you was because there was someone who received the gospel and then entrusted it to other people who also entrusted it to other people who also entrusted it to other. It's incredible. It is the model that has sustained our faith for millennia. Being a disciple who makes disciples. Now, I think the default Christian thought in our Western Christianity is that that is the pastor's job. That we have, we pay people to be teachers and disciplers and equippers. And you are correct that in Ephesians it says that the minister, that the church leader is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, Ephesians 4. But notice that pastors and teachers, church leaders are to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, that it is the saints who do the work of ministry. So it's like in this series, it is an effort by your pastor to equip you to be disciples who make disciples. I, my goal is for you to, to receive this, to believe this, to own this, and to take this and make disciples. To be people who are devoted to being conformed into the image of Christ and helping others do so as well. We're going to tease out those first couple verses later on or as we move along. But Paul gives these three illustrations to help support uh, this idea. And he communicates them in the positive sense, but for our, our time together today, I, I want to share them with you in the negative sense that these are three temptations to making disciples. So the call is clear. We need to be people. The things that we've received, we are to go and trust other people. We're to be disciples who make disciples. But there's going to be three temptations when making disciples. And the first one is this, a distraction. The idea is that discipleship is uh, difficult. Look at verse 3, he says, Share in the suffering of a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who has enlisted him. So the first illustration here is of the soldier. Of the soldier. And he says, share in the sufferings as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. That discipleship um, is difficult. Just like going to war is difficult. That there is suffering involved. Throughout Scripture, we as Christians are referred to as soldiers for the Lord. 
And there's a sense which following Jesus takes the devotion of a soldier. In the same way, if a believer is not willing to endure hardship, they will never accomplish much for Christ Jesus. They will give up as soon as something hard is required of them. That if we believe that the Christian life is a smooth path, that if we're doing it right, it's not going to be difficult, we will give up as soon as we experience difficulty. But if we can expect it, if we can expect it, any soldier that goes to war expects difficulty, expects suffering. If you don't expect difficulty, you cannot fulfill Jesus' call that if anyone desires to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, Matthew 16, 24. So it's difficult. It's difficult. And the, the danger with difficulty, whenever we experience a difficulty, the danger is that we want to um, take our mind off the difficulty. We want to distract ourselves from the difficulty. Isn't this true for us that if you are under stress, you whatever it is you do, you overeat, you distract yourself with food, you binge watch on Netflix or um, get involved in working and working and working, whatever it is you do, whenever life gets difficult, you want to distract your mind from the difficulty that you're enduring. And he's like, that is going to be your temptation. Look at verse 4. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who's enlisted him. He's like a soldier can't be distracted. You, you have to have a single-minded pursuit of the mission. A soldier has to give up many things. Some of them are bad things, like pride or independence or self-will, and some of them are good things. Soldiers have to leave their home and, and their family. Nevertheless, if a soldier's not willing to give up these things, he's not a soldier at all. You imagine enlisting in the, in the army, and then they say, okay, it's time to go. Were you getting deployed? No, I thought I'd work from home. Like, there are a lot of good jobs where you can work from home. A soldier is not one of them. No, it takes sacrifice. It's likely that Paul is even chained to a soldier when he wrote this. He's in Roman prison. He could be changed to a soldier right now. He's probably writing to Timothy, thinking of an illustration, looking, oh, like a soldier. Like a soldier. This guy's devoted. He hasn't seen his family in days because he's been strapped to me. He sees how the soldiers acted, how they obeyed their commanding officers. Paul knew that this must be how the Christian acts towards the Lord. Soldiers aren't known for doing their own thing. You're given a mission. You're given an objective. It's it's undivided loyalty and obedience that it's going to be difficult. Discipleship to Jesus is difficult. Being a disciple is difficult. Making disciples is difficult. We're not talking about an easy task. And you're going to be tempted to be distracted. Maybe even today is the charge for making disciples is going out, you're tempted to be distracted by your phone or wandering thoughts because you don't want to face the difficulty of the call to make disciples. But discipleship is difficult. So like a soldier, we don't get entangled. My entire life now is focused on my Christianity that becomes the main thing about my life. The overarching thing in my life is my discipleship to Jesus, following Jesus. The second temptation. So one temptation is distraction because discipleship is difficult. The second temptation is cheating because discipleship takes discipline. Verse 5, he says, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to to the rules. It's interesting that the, 
the illustration of the athlete, he connects to being a follower of the rules. Why is it that we find it wrong whenever we find out in the news that some professional athlete has been taking performance-enhancing drugs? Right? How come that's wrong? Because there are rules, right? There are rules to sports, and if you don't play by the rules, you don't, you don't get to compete. You don't get to win the prize. We have entire... Um, positions dedicated to enforcing the rules. You go to a game and there's a referee and his entire job is to make sure everybody is following the rules. And if there's a person who doesn't follow the rules, they get kicked out of the game, right? It's possible to fall into the mistake of thinking that we can make up our own rules for the Christian life. For some people, their arrangement goes something like, I know this is sin, but God understands. Him and I, we have this special thing worked out. We have this special deal going on. I've got something worked out with God. I've got my own set of rules that I get to live by. The idea here is that, hey Timothy, discipleship takes discipline and you're going to be tempted to cut corners. Because doing it the right way, doing it God's way, is hard. And so you're going, to be, you're going to be tempted to cheat. But don't, don't do that. You're not crowned unless you compete according to the rules. You have some who, I've converted thousands of people. Look at, look at the crown. Look at the reward. Look at the harvest. Look, look, I've converted so many people. Yeah, you've converted them by telling them they will get all the things they've always wanted and longed for in this life. So have you played according to the rules? Or maybe you get into a theological debate with someone. And uh, I know that never happens for most of you, but there's some people that I'm in group chats with that love to debate theological issues. And maybe you get into a theological debate with somebody, somebody who believes differently than you, and, and you feel like you won the argument. You really gave it to them. But if you broke the law of love, by being arrogant or rude or prideful or unloving, you're not following the rules. He's like, the only way for you to truly win is that the Christian life, God sets the rules. He decides how to play the game. And you will only be crowned victorious if you play by, by the rules. And so there are disciplines and behaviors and practices that God tells us we should lean into, that we should practice, and, and we neglect those things. We are cheating ourselves we're not playing according to the rules. The final temptation is laziness. Discipleship uh, is hard work. Laziness. Look at verse 6. It is a hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. It's a hardworking farmer who ought to have first share of the crops. Unlike the soldier and uh, the athlete, there's nothing glamorous about a hardworking farmer. It's tedious, it's boring, it's unexciting. The nation's best farmers are not celebrities. You, know that? you probably don't know who the best farmers in the nation are because there's nothing glamorous about them, but yet they work hard the same. Day in and day out, devoting themselves to the grueling work that it takes to be a successful farmer. 
What he's saying is that there's a temptation in the Christian life to laziness, to slothfulness, that discipleship to Jesus and making disciples of Jesus especially is hard work. And it takes waiting. Farmers not only work hard, they have to be good at waiting. They have to be patient because the growth to reap the harvest takes time. And and so this is a work hard and wait. You might be like, well, I am a hard worker. You might be a hard worker in other areas of your life. I'm not saying that you're not a hard worker at, at work. I'm not saying you're not a hard worker at, um, at your family life. Or maybe you're a hard worker at whatever skill you've, you've perfected. I'm not claiming that you're not a hard worker in other areas of life. The, you can be a hard worker and still be lazy towards your discipleship to Jesus. What is it, that quote that I shared last week is that from John Calvin, he said that the decline of the church is more due to laziness than wickedness. And the issue is not that you all are, are going and partaking in, in blatant sin. I mean, some of you are. But most of you, you're not going and like doing wild and, and crazy sinful things. You're just neglecting the right things. You're neglecting your relationship with the Lord. That laziness is going to be the temptation for most people. Some people expect something for nothing. But wise people know that you often get out of things according to the measure that you put into them. If you're putting forth little effort in your Christian walk, you can expect little results. Put in little effort and expect little results. I was um, just think about how much effort do you even put into the, the gathering and, and coming to church? You're like, well, I'm just coming to church. I, I watched this video. I found this, this guy uh, on, the, on the old YouTube, and his video was about how to take sermon notes, how to take notes in church. And I was amazed at his, you know, tips. And it was like, before you go to church, maybe pre-read the text that the pastor's going to preach on. Sometimes we're able to give you advance notice of what we're going to be preaching on and Maybe pre-read the passage. Maybe pray before you go to church. Come ready with a, with a plan and a, and a pen and a paper and, and listen actively and take good notes. And I thought, man, I wonder how much more people would get out of church if they actually put effort into church. You'll get out of it what you put into it. But yet, Paul knew that all the work that he does is, is a gift of God's grace. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, I labored more abundantly than them all, yet not I, but the grace of God was with me. It's so funny, Paul's like, I work harder than all y'all, okay? I work harder than all of you, but it's, it's not me. It's the grace of God. Paul knew the balance of working hard yet knowing it was all by grace. Just look at verse 7 where he says, Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding. Isn't that interesting? He says, think over what I say. There, there takes some effort, some meditation, some thought some activeness in thinking over these things. He just gives these three illustrations, and he's like, just think about what these things mean. Think about the implication of these three things, the, the soldier and the athlete and the farmer. Just think about this. He says, yet God will give you understanding. God will give you understanding. 
if you want to receive understanding from God, God, speak to me. I want to hear from you. Like God rarely just zaps people with supernatural revelation. Most of, the, most of the time when God gives understanding to people, it's because they are spending time thinking over the things of God. Thinking over the Scriptures. Meditating on these things. Each of these three, the soldier, the athlete, the farmer, each of these three occupations need perseverance to succeed. That's the common theme through them, through them all. That it takes perseverance. The soldier who stops fighting before the battle is finished will never see victory. The athlete who stops running before the race is over never wins the race. The farmer who stops working before the harvest is complete will never see the fruit of his crops. That you need perseverance to succeed in these things. So, so it might feel like these are, this is a pretty negative sermon right now, but I want you to know that as you begin to try to be a disciple who makes disciples, you're going to be tempted. This is going to come. You're going to be tempted by distraction, and by cheating, cutting corners, and by laziness, you're going to be tempted. But if you persevere, disciple-making is worth it. Disciple-making is worth it. The soldier, he's, he perseveres by the thought of the final victory. The athlete perseveres by the vision for the crown or the reward that he will receive. The farmer perseveres by the hope for the harvest. That In Galatians it says, do not give up while doing good. For if you persevere, you will reap if you do not give up. Here's the point. Disciple making is worth it. Disciple making is worth it. We need the strength of the Lord for all of this. I don't want us to go out there and be like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. We've got to rely on the strength of God. We've got to keep Him as our source. This is what Paul tells Timothy. Hey, what I'm about to tell you is going to be difficult. Let's go back to verse 1. He says, so then, my child, be strengthened by the grace of that is in Christ Jesus. And so by the strength of Christ in us, God's grace towards us, we are strengthened and energized for this task to be disciples who make disciples. When Paul experienced tremendous difficulty, he shares the thing that the Lord gave him to get through it is when God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. That there is, you might feel inadequate to be a disciple who makes disciples. And he's saying, but with the strength that comes with the grace of God, you can do it. So, it seems like the teaching is clear from 2 Timothy that True Jesus followers are disciples who make disciples. And so how can we do that? So if that's what the, the text means, the question we have to ask is, what does that mean for me? What, what is the application for me? How can I do that? How can I be a disciple who makes disciples? And what we believe moving forward is the best way for a Jesus follower to partake in disciple making um, that is discipleship groups. So let's talk a little bit about discipleship groups. Uh, discipleship groups, the primary purpose of a discipleship group is accountability for maturity. So last week we saw that a small group is, is a group of about 8 to 20 people Kind of how Jesus had the 12. It's a, it's a group of 8 to 20 people, and the primary purpose is fellowship. It's community. 
It's creating a space where people uh, can come and be uh, welcomed into the family of God. They can have a place to belong in the family of God. So then discipleship groups, the primary purpose of a discipleship group, a smaller group, maybe three to five people, is accountability for maturity. We want you to grow in Christ-likeness through accountable relationships. I believe that God designed us to remain faithful to Him through accountable relationships. And so I'm going to give us four things that discipleship groups focus on. I want you to know that a lot of this is adapted from uh, the resources from Replicate Ministry, which is a ministry that helps resource Christians and churches to be disciples who make disciples. They, they resource in, in discipleship and discipleship groups primarily. And so um, some of this comes from their teaching. That four things that discipleship groups foc- focus on. This is what faithful followers of Jesus do. The first is Bible engagement. I don't think you're going to be totally surprised by most of this, but it's Bible engagement. Look at verse 2 in Timothy. He says, And what you have heard from me, in the presence of many witnesses, be faithful, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So if Paul wrote a lot of the Scripture, if the things that he received from Paul was the doctrine of Paul from the New Testament, I think it's safe to say that this is a, this is a devotion to the Scripture, and, but not just receiving it. Like, don't just receive it, but then do something with it. And so Bible engagement is not Bible reading. We can all just have a Bible reading plan. We get in there and we read for the day and we close the Bible. We never think about it again. But a discipleship group is, is, is really not designed for someone to get in there and teach their own ideas, to teach all their tips and tricks to life. It's, it's designed to study biblical doctrine together. And it's not just reading, it's not just going through a plan simply, but it's designed that you would apply the word. James 1.22, I'm sure you're familiar with it, where he says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. That God's intention for us as we engage with the Bible is not just to receive information. It's not like, let me just finish my plan. I I did something. But it's intimacy. Spending time with a person. It's not just information, but it's intimacy. This is the difference between information-based discipleship. You take a class. You read a book. You go through a program. I've been discipled, checked it off the box versus obedience-based discipleship. Obedience-based discipleship is teaching you how to live a life of a disciple who makes disciples. And part of that is engagement with the Bible. Paul tells Timothy in verse 7, he says, Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. He says, think over what I say. And so, one practical way to engage with the Bible, to think over the things of the Scripture, is to write things down. Is to journal. Uh, We've shared before about the here journaling method. It's one we're going to be promoting as we focus on Discipleship groups in the future, there's many methods for journaling. I think here is a good one. That you read a text, maybe you're in a reading plan, you read whatever your text is for the day, and whenever something stands off the page to you, whenever God begins to speak to you, a verse is highlighted to you, the H highlight, you take that, you write it down, you say, okay, this is the verse I'm going to spend my time on today, and then I'm going to explain what's going on here. What is the author saying? What is the context? Maybe I'm going to read the chapters before and behind to see what's going on. Who is he writing to? What is the main thrust of the message here? It's explaining the text. What does it mean? 
And then A is application. How, how does this change my life? What do I need to do as a result of this? And then R is respond. Respond in a prayer. Respond in an action. A great way to, to pull out application, maybe you've heard this before, but is the spec method. You read a text and you're wondering, how do I apply this? Spec. S is for, is there a sin to confess or avoid? You read, is there a sin that I need to confess? Do I need to avoid? The P, is there, is there a promise to keep? Is God promising something in here that I need to hold on to? E, is there an example to follow? Do I need to follow something here? C, is there a command to obey? Is He commanding me to do something? And K, is, is, is there a knowledge of God that I need to reflect on? Sometimes there's a verse, and it's just telling you what God is like. And it's helpful for you to just reflect on who God is. So is there a sin to avoid, a promise to keep, an example to follow, a command to obey? Is there a knowledge of God that I need to reflect on? Spec. It's a great way, a practical way of, of applying the Bible, this Bible engagement. So generally in a, in a um, discipleship group, you'll it's Bible-based, so you're going to be reading the Bible together. And in your own personal God time, you're going to be hearing from God and, and journaling what you're hearing from God. Maybe you if, you, if you don't journal at all, you're like, I'm not a writer, I'm not a journaler at all. Maybe it's just doing one a week. Maybe that's progress for you. It's going to be difficult. You're going to be tempted to distraction and laziness, but we're going to press into it and say, maybe it's just one a week. If you already journal, you're already pretty fluent at that. Maybe it's you're going to do three or four a week. Hearing from God. So when you get together with your discipleship group, how, what did you hear from God this week? You have something to share. Wouldn't it be awesome? Wouldn't it be awesome if, can you imagine, um, one day, God forbid, the preacher doesn't show up. Heavens to Betsy, the preacher didn't show up to church this week. It almost happened this week. I'll tell you, Friday, I was trying to look for ways to not show up to church because I, I was down with the, with the bug. And so wouldn't it be great if we had a church filled with people that if someone said, hey, the preacher didn't show up today, do you have something you can share from the Bible? And you had a journal that several times a week You've been hearing from God and you could go to and you could open to a passage. You can share what God's been speaking to you. Wouldn't that be awesome? It would be. Oh, y'all get on it. So I can take a day off every once in a while. All right? I'm kidding. Y'all are, I take plenty of days off. <laughs> um, <laughs> so Bible engagement the second, the second thing that, that discipleship groups focus on is a scripture memory. Back to Bible engagement. I'm, outside, we gave you in God Time Week some Hear Journal guides. They're still out there in the lobby if you want one of those Hear Journal guides. But scripture memory is the, is the second thing. Um, memorizing the scripture, hiding God's word in your heart. And uh, this should be the discipline of, a, of a, every disciple of Jesus. Knowing the Word of God helps us respond to spiritual attacks in our life. Whenever you go through life, you are going to experience a time of tragedy or trial or difficulty or temptation. And you are going to need to have some of God's Word hidden in your heart. If we are going to have the mind of Christ, if we are going to imitate Christ in thinking like Christ... We have to have God's Word in us. Whenever Jesus was tempted in Matthew 4, He was drawn away after His baptism, drawn away by the Spirit into the wilderness to fast for 40 days, and then He was tempted by the enemy. Whenever He experienced temptation, He responds with the Word of God. He quotes the Scripture. Now, I believe that Jesus, in His humanity, had to memorize Scripture like you and I have to memorize Scripture. So that whenever He calls His disciples to come and follow Me, they can actually fulfill that. Can you imagine if He called His disciples, come follow Me, and His disciples were like, 
We can never imitate you, Jesus. You're God. We can't do what you can do. No, he's like, come and follow me. I think in his humanity, he had to actually memorize these scriptures so that when he was tempted, he could combat the enemy with the word of God. But here's the thing. If you know the story, whenever he goes and is tempted by the devil, after he quotes scripture to the enemy, the enemy quotes scripture back to him. The devil comes back with some lines out of Psalm 91. But like the enemy does, he, he quotes it out of context. He misconstrues the, the Scripture, what it actually means. But Jesus knew it. Jesus spotted his misquote of Scripture. And here's, here's a question I heard this week that has just bothered me. And I like to give you things that bother me. So wrestle with this. Do I know the Bible well enough that if the enemy quotes Scripture to me, I know where he's misquoting it? Do I have so much of the Bible hidden in my heart that I would be able to spot when it's quoted out of context? And I don't think many of us have arrived at that place, but that should be what we are equipping ourselves with as Jesus followers. Storing God's Word in us so that whenever we experience a tragedy or a trial, it's not just for temptation, when you experience difficulty in life, you need to be able to have the Word of God to help you get through the difficulty. You need to have promises to hold on to. You need to have a theology of suffering. You need to have something substantial to hold on to. And we do that through memorizing Scripture. Psalm 119.11 says, For I have hidden your Word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I hid that word in my heart when I was a child in the Lord's army. And Nestor and Donna drilled into us memory verses, Bible memory. And so even today, many years later, I can tell you I've hidden your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. Whenever temptation comes, you need to have it in you to say, no, that's not God's way. I'm not doing that. That's not honoring to God. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the Word of God is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of the soul and spirit of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. We need to have the living Word of God moving in us and shaping us daily through Bible memory. There's this quote from Chuck Swindoll in his book, Growing Strong. He says, I know of no other single practice in the Christian life more rewarding, practically speaking, than memorizing Scripture. No other single exercise pays greater spiritual dividends. Your prayer life will be strengthened. Your witnessing will be sharper and more effective. Your attitude and outlook will begin to change. Your mind will become alert and observant. Your confidence and assurance will be enhanced. Your faith will be solidified. I know of no other single practice in the Christian life more rewarding than memorizing Scripture. Isn't that incredible? And so part of a discipleship group, ideally, would be a time where you are memorizing Scripture together and you're quoting Scriptures together and bit by bit, bite by bite, you are hiding God's Word in your heart. The third thing and the primary purpose of accountability, uh, of discipleship groups, is accountability. Um, accountability. We're, we, we need, we need, we need accountability in our Christian life. As your pastor, there's no way for me to keep you accountable for living the Christian life. 
We come to church. We profess faith. Uh, but there's no way for me to know if you're actually doing any of the stuff that a Christ follower does. But point three here is accountability. So I can't keep every one of you accountable. But if you are in a group sitting across from three or four other guys or, or gals, and they can ask you accountability questions. If they can ask you, have you shared your faith this week? If they ask you, have you tried? Maybe they can ask you, have you prayed this week? Or they ask you, how's your Bible reading going? How's your Bible engagement? Consistency in the life of a Jesus follower is dependent on accountability, accountable relationships. We need that. James 5.16 says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. For the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. He says, therefore, confess your sins to one another. Are you doing that with anybody? Do you have someone that you can confess your sins to? He didn't say confess your sins to everybody. But confess your sins to somebody. What we like to say, what we like to say in the Protestant uh, tradition is, man, I don't have to go to no priest. I don't have to confess my sins to any priest to receive forgiveness. I can go directly to God. Amen. Amen, you can. And, and we confess our sins to God to receive forgiveness. It's not a forgiveness issue. He says, confess your sins to one another so that you may be healed. And maybe there's some besetting sins that you struggle with and for us to receive victory over that and healing in that, we need, to, we need to be accountable to one another and have someone that you can confess your sin to. So although we love to brag about the fact that we don't have to confess our sin to anybody, this is in the New Testament written to Jesus' followers. Confess your sins to one another. Do you have a relationship with anyone that you can confess your sin to. And if someone confesses their sin to you, your job is not to shame them about it or beat them up about it. As a Christian community, if you're in a group and somebody confesses sin to you, you know what the response is? Sorry? Come alongside of them. Amen. Hey, here's a great response as you come alongside of them. For there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together, brother. Let's pray, sister. I'm going to hold you accountable. I'm going to ask you how you're doing next time. We're going to get through this, and you're going to experience healing and victory in this. So who are you confessing to? That's what discipleship groups provide. You can't really do that in a big group. You can't really do that in a church gathering. You can't really do that even in a small group. But in a discipleship group where you've entered into covenant with three to five people and you're meeting regularly with one another, part of it is asking accountability questions. Hebrews 3.12 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be any of uh, any." of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And sin is deceitful. And we need people who can speak into our life and help us overcome that through accountable relationships. Final thing about discipleship groups is a devotion to prayer. Devotion to prayer. And really, these things aren't like big secrets. Uh, I heard one person say this week that the secrets of the Christian life are the obvious things. Like, what's the secret to having a robust, 
faith in Jesus. Yeah, engage with the Bible. <laughs> Write some things down, journal, spend some time with God, memorize some scripture, and devote yourself to prayer. But I think probably our bent in prayer is, is requests. And the Bible is clear that we come to God and we can make requests. We can ask God for things. But is our entire prayer life just filled with requests? Is the only time you talk to God to ask Him for something? You come to God with your list. Here, God, I need you to do these things. Prayer is designed to have communion with God. Prayer is designed to have a relationship with God. When is the last time that you went to God through prayer not to get anything from Him, but just to spend time with Him? You come to God, I'm not asking you for anything. I just want to be with you. I just want to talk with you. Prayer is not so much trying to get something from God as much as it is just, just being with God. What if we went to God and we just thanked God? What if we just praised God? What if we just spent time with Him? What if we just celebrated with God? God, this awesome thing happened today. I just wanted to tell you about it. What if we spent time blessing God? That's why the reference here is Ephesians 5.20 where it says, giving thanks always in everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just coming to Him in prayer to be with Him. To spend time with Him. With thankfulness. Philippians 4, a famous passage for prayer, says rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Have you ever thought about just praying until you have peace? I'm just going to pray. There's some things bothering me. I'm just going to pray to God. Just be with God until I have peace about it. It's interesting that later in that chapter in Philippians, in verse 9, it says, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. The purpose of prayer is to be with God, to experience the God of peace. Can I just pray? Can I just pray until God shows up in a way that I have the God of peace with me? Wouldn't that be incredible? And of course, like any relationship, requests are part of a relationship. But can you imagine if all your relationship was with your spouse, just every time you were just asking for something? That's how Cammie probably feels most of the time. But if I just, just, you're just asking, can you do this? Can you help me with that? Can you, can you imagine if the only communication with your significant other was just requests? How healthy would your relationship be? Now, sometimes you just need to talk. Sometimes you need to celebrate. Sometimes you need to thank and praise. Sometimes you just need to be with. That's what prayer should look like. So practically, so those are the four things. We are engaging in the Bible. We are uh, memorizing Scripture together. We're accountable to one another. And we're devoting ourselves to praying for one another. And, um, but practically, what does a discipleship group look like? And, and here it is, um, wrapping up here. Who should be in one of these groups? Um, well, verse 2, he says, Entrust these things to faithful men. The faithful men, this is believers. So a discipleship group is composed of believers. These are not for unbelievers. These are, this is not evangelistic in nature. Uh, because the goal is accountability for maturity, for Christ-likeness, you have to be a person who's devoted to Christ-likeness. And so small groups are a great place. Uh, whenever you have 12 to 20 people, maybe in a home, and you're getting together, it's a great place to invite unbelievers into 
uh, as kind of a first experience of the body of Christ, uh, an evangelistic opportunity, but not discipleship groups. This is composed of uh, believers. They are gender-specific. Men with men and women with women. Look at look what he says here. He says, entrust these things to faithful men. And I, I think if he was... If he was writing to a woman, he would have said, entrust these things to faithful women. Um, that Titus 2 gives us some instruction about how older men should mentor younger men, older women should mentor younger women. There's something about gender-specific groups that is special. If you've ever been to a men's conference or a woman's conference, there's something supernatural and special that happens in the room when all men gather or all women gather that doesn't happen in a mixed gender group of people. And also, just practically speaking, gender specific, it is not wise, if you don't know this, write this down. It is not wise for you, you to have an accountable, confiding relationship in someone of the opposite sex who is not your spouse. Okay? That is a dangerous practice for those of you who are married. If you have a confiding, I'm telling these people, this, I'm telling them my secrets, I'm telling them my sins. If you have a confiding relationship with someone of the opposite sex, that is not your spouse, that is not wise. But, but it is men with women, women keep, I'm sorry, women with women, women keep women accountable, men keep men accountable. Um, so they're gender specific. Um, small groups are mixed gender. Our church gathering is mixed gender. Discipleship groups are gender specific. Uh, three to five people max. This is a small group, a core group. Really, once you get above um, five people, it becomes very difficult for everyone to participate in a way that is healthy. If you get a group that is more six, seven, if you begin to get six or seven people in a discipleship group, it's a sign that you need to branch off and create two discipleship groups because these need to be small, three to five people. Um, and there's strength in having a few people uh, that is in your core. This is how Jesus did it, just the three, Peter, James, and John. Um, they're devoted to weekly disciplines. We're going to devote ourselves to these things. I'm going to devote myself to Bible engagement, to journaling, to Scripture memory, to accountability, to prayer. I'm going to devote myself to these things, and we're going to meet 60 to 90 minutes weekly. 60 to 90 minutes weekly. And so this is a commitment. This is going to, it's going to be difficult some, for some of you. It's going to be hard work for you to make this a priority in your life. But I encourage you, the best way to do it is to make it part of your existing schedule, to figure out a way to fit it into what you're already doing in life. If you work together, you've got a few people that you work together that are believers, maybe on your lunch break you get together for an hour or however much time you have and, and do this together once a week. Uh, if you have kids, maybe early morning, early morning, you should... Maybe work for you or late at night, you can get with some other people. Um, if you go to church, maybe you come early, um, uh, 8.30, 9 o'clock, and you get together with your core group, with your discipleship group, and you do this maybe on a Wednesday night. You spend Wednesday night, and you get some place in this building, if this would be the best place for you to meet. Like, think about it. Get creative, okay? Get creative. But we should devote ourselves to these things. Um, and what is the goal here is to multiply after 12 to 18 months. Okay, so the goal, multiplication is in mind from the beginning. You do this for 12 to 18 months, maybe 24 months max, and then we are going to multiply, and everybody in the group should go be then leading their other groups. He says there, you've heard in the presence of many witnesses and trust faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Jesus' followers are disciples who make disciples. We believe one of the best ways to make disciples practically in your life is to form a discipleship group. And if you want more information about discipleship groups, reach out to me. I will, I will email you a discipleship group starter guide. Um, and this is resources we have from Replicate Ministry. And it will help you know how to form a discipleship group if you want to start a discipleship group, a great time is to start at the beginning of the year. And so um, over the next couple months, we are going to have a discipleship group 
a leader training to help equip you to do this. And then wouldn't it be great at the beginning of the year, we start something fresh. As a church, we're going to be doing a reading plan together. I'm going to be preaching out of that reading plan. And wouldn't it be amazing if you have a discipleship group of a core of three to five men with men, women with women, who you're meeting with, and you're reading through this plan together and focusing on it. We're going to become like Christ together, okay? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? The goal today is to help us, to exhort us, as Paul did Timothy, to be a Jesus follower who makes Jesus followers, to be a disciple who makes disciples, that what we've received we entrust to others. And practically the way we want to focus on doing that as a church moving forward is discipleship groups. Father, I thank you that Timothy was obedient to this command. I thank you that he entrusted what was taught to him to faithful men who entrusted it to others, who taught others also. I thank you that it has been passed down throughout millennia so that we can experience and know the life-transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we can be forgiven of our sin and have a real tangible relationship with the true and living God and God I pray that we would not just be people who receive these things and it stops with us but that we would take on the charge to be disciples who make disciples Lord if discipleship groups help us do that I pray that we would start one Devote ourselves to these things. God, I pray if there's anyone in here who they, they, don't, they don't even consider themselves a disciple of you. They've never experienced faith transforming, forgiving faith in Jesus. I pray that today would be the day that they respond to the call to come and follow me They would turn from their sin and embrace Jesus for the forgiveness of sin and experience the abundant life that you offer all those who trust in you. Father, I thank you for our time in your word. I pray that we leave here and be doers of the word, not hearers only. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.